Welcome to the Iron Butterfly Podcast, co-produced by the National Security Institute and the Amazing Women of the IC, better known as AWIC. My name is Megan Jaffer, and I will be your host. Eighty years ago, Eloise Page joined the Office of Strategic Services, or the OSS, a predecessor for what we recognize today as the United States Intelligence Community. Page started as a secretary, but worked her way to becoming a case officer, and later she became the first female chief of station at CIA. Along the way, she earned the nickname Iron Butterfly, known for being a fierce fighter with a core of steel. The Iron Butterfly podcast aims to continue her legacy, inviting the U.S. intelligence community's unsung heroines to share their stories with aspiring IC leaders. On this episode, we are joined by Janice Glover-Jones. She currently serves as the Chief Diversity, Equality, and Inclusion Officer at the Defense Intelligence Agency. Prior to her current role, Janice held several key leadership roles across the intelligence and defense community. Janice was a Senior Executive Fellow at Dell Technologies, Chief Information Officer at the DIA, and Executive Program Manager at the National Geospatial Intelligence Agency. Janice is also a DIA certified coach. Hi, Janice. Thanks for joining us today. Hi, Megan. Thanks for the invite and opportunity to speak with you today. Well, we're excited to have you. So I think many of our listeners will be amazed to learn that when you started your career in the government, you began as a GS1, which means that you have successfully climbed through every rank to become a senior executive. What are a few of the most defining moments on that journey? Yeah, so I would say for me, um, one of those significant moments was when I actually took a risk. Uh, I think at the time I was, I think, a GS8, and I was working in the nuclear energy division. And I was what they called at the time an intelligence technician. And basically, we did the research and um, scanned the message traffic for the analysts, highlighted it. And so we were doing, I would call it foundational data analysis at the time um, for the analysts to help them out. And I was in the office that particular day and the office had gone out for some sort of luncheon. And I stayed back to answer the phones. And at that time, we got a call from our headquarters, which is equivalent to the director of analysis, what that is today in in DIA. And the senior executive at the time was the deputy of the organization. His name was Louis Andre. And he had a task and he needed an answer in about 30 minutes. And there was nobody else there. So I took the call. Uh, I thought I knew the answer and I prepared the answer, but then I vacillated on, there's nobody in my chain of command. I'm not an analyst. What do I do? Do I submit this question or do I look for someone who could approve it, someone who could chop on it? And the clock is ticking. So I eventually took the answer upstairs and I'm outside of his office and I'm talking to his executive assistant. And I'm explaining to her that no one has approved this. Nobody in my chop chain. This is pre-cell phone. So no one could, I couldn't reach out to someone and say, hey, come back to the office. This is going on. And I'm putting all these disclaimers out and I'm think I'm whispering, but he actually overhears me and he walks out and he then takes the paper and I start all over again, telling him all of the disclaimers and, you know, I could be wrong. I answered it. I did what I 
I think I know it's right. I believe it's the right answer, but I could be wrong. And so now I'm even second guessing myself on what I had actually done. And when I started out, I believe I had the answer right. And he looked at it. He read it. He said, your answer is spot on. And he said, also, this is the first time in a long time that I've gotten an answer on a tasker in the time frame that I requested it. And then he took me in his office and he began to mentor me um, in telling me not to second guess myself on what I was actually doing and that if I knew the answer, you know, I took a risk of, and I, I called it, I stepped out on faith and I actually gave it to him. And at the time I had not finished my college degree. So I was telling him, you know, I don't have a hard science degree and I'm telling him all of this. He's like, Janice, if you know the right thing to do, do it. And that for me um, became a, a, a pivotal moment in my career that it was almost like a level of freedom that I could step out and actually take a leap of faith and do some of the things that I knew that I could do. Um, and so that was it's one. kind of like trusting yourself, right? Trusting your intuition. After that moment, did you ever do that again? Or did it take a couple more times for you to really feel solid in, in that feeling? <laughs> yeah. Um, after that moment, no, I, I actually, it, it was, I would call it, it was when I began to start discovering my voice, because after that moment, still in the same organization, uh, I had applied for a promotion and the other lady in the sister branch had applied. There was only one promotion and she got the promotion and I didn't. And so I went to the chief of the organization and I said, I'd like to understand what was the differentiating factor between the two of us. Why did she get the promotion and I didn't, right? And so it actually gave me a level of courage and I began to use my voice. I don't think that I would have done that uh, prior to that, um, stepping out there like I did. And, you know, and I asked him for feedback and and he wasn't really giving me feedback, but I wouldn't let it go. And so I continued to to press him. And then um, subsequent to that, I, I run in, in the hallway. I run into um, a guy by the name of Colonel Duarte Lopez, and he was in the Air Force and he had just retired. And I had worked with him in, you know, in passing and I said to him, we spoke and he said, Janice, what you up to? And I said, oh, nothing much. I said, hey, look me up if you have a job for me. And that was it. I kept on walking. A little bit of time went by. And he actually reached out to me and he said, hey, Janice, I have a budget analyst job available. I'd like for you to apply for it. I didn't have any budget experience. <laughs> Um, the closest thing I had to managing a budget at that time was the office travel budget. And that wasn't a whole lot of money. But I had no budget background. And 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 on top of that, the mission uh, that he was supporting was new to DIA. It was Mazin, and it had just moved over to DIA. And so I applied for the job, and I actually got it. Um, and again, I think it was the courage and the taking the risk to even just have that little bit of conversation to say, hey, if you have anything in the future, look me up. So, you know, I think a lot of listeners would would kind of ask the question, you had said to him, hey, look me up if you had a job. And then he comes back to you later on and says, you know, I have this job, but you're going to be doing budgets. And you just told me, you know, I didn't have a lot of experience with it. What within you um, did you listen to that you were like, oh, you know what, I'm going to try this. I might not know it. I don't know if I like it, but I'm going to take that risk or I'm going to take that leap. Because I think a lot of listeners think, you know, maybe if, they, if they're if they not 100% in, then they shouldn't take it. Or if they 
not sure if they're going to like it, that they shouldn't take it. So what would you tell those people? So, you know, I had, I have always been a very conscientious person. And when he mentioned it to me, you know, I think I did what most people do. I'm highly analytical. So I started researching budget analysts within the organization. I went out and started talking to people who were actually serving in that role to try to get an understanding of what that role would be. And then eventually, I think, you know, I tapped into, you asked me what did I tap into and what within me did it, you know. I think it was also just kind of the way that I was raised, where I saw strong women around me, that being my mother, her sisters, my grandmother, um, who just did what had to be done and um, and always just stepped out there. And, and, and I think that was also a part of my upbringing. But um, I did I did the work. I did the research. I went into it. So I didn't walk into it blindly. And I think my first reaction, and, and that's kind of natural, is, um, no, I can't do that. And in, in some cases, I still do that today. And then, you know, I give myself 24 hours and then I have a little talk with myself and go, okay, um, yeah, you can actually do this. And what's stopping you? Why are you stopping yourself? That's a great question. Why are you stopping yourself? Mm-hmm. So I'm sure that throughout your career, you've encountered, you know, roadblocks and challenges along the way. How did you persevere through those moments? Yeah. So um, I'll share a little story with you. At this point, I am now a senior executive and I am still in uh, the finance uh, role supporting the CIO. And we had just come out of what was called DOTA's Way Ahead, where we had consolidated the IT at the commands and we knew some significant budget reductions were coming. So we knew we needed to basically gain efficiencies by consolidating the IT, reducing the redundancies and putting in things that were more efficient. And so we started this effort called reinvention. And I worked with my peers. We basically spent about two and a half weeks in a conference room for 10 to 12 hours a day coming up with a plan of how we would um, gain these efficiencies and what we needed to do, what we would stop, and where we would focus the resources and how we could generate some efficiencies. And everybody worked and we planned and we looked at the data. And um, like I said, it was about two and a half weeks, 10 to 12 hours, and we came up with a plan. And ultimately, we briefed the plan to the director, DIA at the time. It was Ann we got approval. And so that Friday we went out, we celebrated. And um, after that, that Monday, we were starting the implementation and the execution of the plan. Well, almost immediately, I was met with passive aggressive behavior with the individuals who I had just spent two and a half weeks with in the room. And for a while, it just kind of stumped me. I was like, wait a minute, you agreed to this is what it is. Um, But what I realized is that um, even though we had worked together in the room, where I failed at is I failed to understand the difference between agreement and actual buy-in to the plan. So fundamentally, they agreed with the plan. What they didn't buy into is the change that impacted them. And so I was met with resistance um, the entire way. But we had to implement the plan. And we had goals and performance measures that we had to to meet. And we had to be able to brief it back to the director 
on a monthly basis so that he could show that we were making progress against the plan. And so um, those were some significant roadblocks that I faced at that time. And one of the things that kept me grounded was I reconnected with my why. And throughout any time I face challenges, and especially if they are prolonged, I reconnect with my why. Why am I doing this? Why am I in the role that I'm in? Why did I raise my hand and say I wanted to do this? And one of the ways that I reconnected with it, and this is, you know, it's a visual, and I kept this with me. And I reconnected with my why by doing um, several things. Uh, And I'll I'll show you this. Um, Harriet Tubman is one of my sheroes. And so I kept this visual of Harriet Tubman with her, um, with a gun in her hand and her Bible across her back. And what that helped me do is it helped me stay focused on my values because one of my values is is faith, but also it was the um, the fight within me to know that I was doing the right thing and that's what needed to be done. And then the other thing that I kept I connected back to my why was um, the oath of office that I had sworn and taken the oath of office. And I would read this on a daily basis to remember that I had raised my right hand and said that I would support and defend the Constitution of the United States of America and all for which it stands for. Can you share with the people, because we won't be able to show the video to our mm-hmm. listeners. So sure. you just showed me, um, you you pulled out a, what looks like a notebook yes. and you had on one page, you know, a picture of Harriet Tubman pasted on, on the top portion and on the bottom portion was... Um, the oath of office. So is that notebook, tell me what that notebook is, if you can. So this is notebook. um, This was uh, pre-technology and having a tablet, but this was um, my notebook that I took um, my notes in uh, as I went to meetings. And so I have the dates here and I can tell you that, you know, the first date in this, in this notebook is 16 August, 2010. And Every day I would look at that. And then I worked with my my coach and I actually um, wrote a a purpose statement, um, my personal mission statement of what I could do during that period. Um, and then the other thing, I believe in the power of affirmations. Right. And I understood that I had to, despite the challenges that I was facing, I had to stay true to who I was and I had to remain authentic to who I was. Um, and so I I would surround myself with affirmations, say those daily. And and then actually, you know, focus on here's what I can control and here's the things that I couldn't control. You know, I had crucial conversations with my peers. I reached out. I understood what was um, their perspective and what was causing them angst. And in some cases, we worked it out. Um, but ultimately, I also had to um, stay true to myself. And, and those are some of the things that I do on a routine basis whenever I face an, uh, an obstacle. I, I go back and I reconnect with my why. So that is a very powerful answer. And I really appreciate you sharing um, that that story with us and um, your notebook with us. Did you ever find yourself in a challenging situation that you couldn't walk away from? You had to face, you know, dead on. You know, sometimes you have the ability to kind of step back and say, okay, how am I going to do this? Or what am I going to do? Or talk with someone. Was there, you know, could you give us an example of a challenging situation that you had to kind of just barrel through? Sure. And I, I think I'm, we're there now and I'm doing it today. Uh, we all find ourselves in the midst of uh, managing 
this pandemic, um, managing home life, managing work life. And uh, as a leader uh, in the IC, you know, you always have to balance the tension between taking care of your workforce and taking care of the mission. And in some cases, they don't always align. They're not always um, equal, shall I say. And and so I can't walk away from that. Um, we have to barrel through that. We have to uh, ensure that the mission continues as well as how do you keep your, you know, how do you keep your workforce safe? And um, and meet the demands of the customers and meet the flexibilities that each individual in your workforce requires. And they're all different. Um, there may be some similarities, but they, they all have unique circumstances and remain empathetic as well as remaining solution oriented and outcome focused. And there's always tension and it's always a struggle. So what's the best way you maintain perseverance when in this line of work, things can be largely out of control and it can, it may not always pay off, at least in the form that you had hoped. Sure. Um, and I would say that I'm still learning this, but giving myself permission to take care of Janice is, is one of the ways that, you know, you maintain um, perseverance and being self-aware and surrounding myself with a tribe that can have honest, crucial conversations with me, uh, that can tap me on the shoulder and say, hey, Janice, it's time for you to pull back. Um, take a couple of days, get yourself back centered, um, but you got to take care of yourself. And because what I have discovered is the higher you go up, the lonelier it is. And it's you really don't have the luxury of having a lot of people that you can have the conversations that you need to have with, right? And um, and so it's important that you do put those people around you um, and surround yourself with some good people that can can help you out during those times. Did it take a while for you to be self-aware, as you described, and, and to find those people? I mean, I, I can imagine that, you know, it's ebbs and flows right throughout your career. And and uh, is it, it's, it's maybe fluid in these you know, it depends on the job and the people around you. Yeah. So several years ago, I got certified in emotional intelligence and EQ. And um, I was self-aware in some instances, but in other in other ways, I wasn't um, real self-aware. So yes, it takes a while. It's a maturity thing, right? I don't, I don't, I wouldn't say I walked into it or was born into it. Um, and yes, it takes, it takes a while to be able to, to trust you know, totally someone that you can be 100% vulnerable with and ensure that that conversation will stay with you and that person. Um, someone that you can, you know, um, that you're willing to, I would just say, be unashamed to say, hey, this is how I'm feeling. This is why I'm feeling that way. Um, and so some of them, for me, they're in the intelligence community and then others, they're not. You know, I have... Um, I have one particular girlfriend who wears and goes through life with rose colored glasses on and I'll call her from time to time and I say, you know what, I need to put on your glasses because right now I'm, I'm, <laughs> not seeing, <laughs> I'm not seeing anything good that can come out of this situation. And generally by the time we finish with the conversation, right, that's somebody who can help shift the perspective for me and, 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 and we can talk it through and work it out. So absolutely. I love that. I love that you have someone like that. So 
You currently serve as the Chief Diversity, Equity, and Inclusion Officer at DIA. Can you share with us a few moments you felt that your lessons learned about perseverance, boundaries, and self-awareness have helped you in your current role as a leader? Sure. It's about, um, so A, knowing how to challenge the status quo, knowing how, knowing when to challenge the status quo. And then um, I'm continuing to learn is knowing when the battle is yours and knowing when the battle is okay for someone else to fight for you, right? Um, You don't have to be the person who charged the hill all the time. Um, And I I use the mantra of it's it's like a garden. Um, I may plant the seed one day or I may water the seed and or someone else may plant the seed and I come along and water it or, you know, vice versa. But at the end of the day, if the garden grows, what difference does it make if who actually planted the seed if the goal is to get the garden to grow? And so I've, I've learned that that certain people can be the messenger um, and they will have a better opportunity of being the messenger uh, than you uh, to deliver that message. And so understanding that. And I would also say, um, don't sweat the small stuff, right? You know, I've, I've started asking myself, will this matter in five years? And if it doesn't, okay, is it worth my time and attention? Would you do that for, and this is a personal question for me, do you do that in your personal and professional life? Because I've asked many of my mentors and leaders in the IC, how do you do that? How do you not sweat the small stuff? Because sometimes you make a decision or you you do something and then you go home and you second guess yourself or you question like, oh, this person's going to be upset or I'm going to I'm going to piss this person off. How do you do that? And is it just asking that question? Like, is it is this going to be important in five years? Yeah. So I, I do ask myself that question. Uh, I do. I would ask myself the question of, OK, if Megan gets mad, what's the worst thing that can happen, right? Um, if if Megan is meant to be aligned to me and understands that I didn't intentionally do set out to hurt her feelings or to do something that was offensive to her, I would believe that Megan and I could have a conversation and we could um, move beyond this. But if we can't move beyond this, then maybe that relationship wasn't meant to be. And that's sweating the small stuff, right? And so um, I think it was... Um, Maya Angelou, who said, when people can walk out of your life, let them go, right? That time heals all wounds. And so I, um, I'm learning to subscribe to that. And it's I love that. Okay. So I'm going to switch gears a little bit. Um, I think many of our listeners might not know that you spent a couple of years at Dell as a senior executive fellow. Um, can you share with us a few of your key observations from your time in the commercial world? Sure. Um, so first, uh, it was on the commercial side of Dell, and I had no experience in the commercial world. So it was totally foreign to me. And um, I think uh, one of the big takeaways that I, I, I took from that experience was their senior leaders, uh, and when I, when I would say their senior leaders, you know, equivalent to SESs in the, in, in the IC and uh, DD4s and uh, big directorate heads, um, spent 90% of their time focus on the future of the organization, focus on the future of Dell's products. Um, very little of their time was spent on the day-to-day unless they really needed to uh, help a leader who was underneath them uh, deal with an issue. 
And and I think that because I saw that strategic uh, focus uh, in action. And um, when you think about it in the IC today, um, I read an article not too long ago that said that 3% of leaders um, actually focus on the future just because they really don't have the time. Um, and that's about all the time that they have to focus on their future. And so that was key for me. And then the second um, big takeaway was for that to be a tech company um, and the investment that they had made in their technology, they really did um, see their people as their most expensive investment vice their technology that they were selling. And and I thought, and I think coming from a, a tech company, um, that was significant to see how they really valued their people over their technology. Wow, that's that's great insight. Thanks for sharing that. So knowing all that you know now in your amazing career, what advice would you have given GS1 Janice? <laughs> <laughs> so, you know, GS1 Janice had the plan to go and be a, a operating room nurse, right? <laughs> um and uh, obviously that never happened. Um, but I, I think the, the biggest advice that I would give uh, myself back then was spend time cultivating relationships versus networking, right? Um, and uh, really understand and appreciate the value of relationships. Uh, I learned that later, uh, but I think at a younger age, if I would have had that, uh, I think I just would have been better served and I would have approached certain situations differently. I could not agree with you more. It's kind of funny you said that because right before we got on this um, taping, I talked with a friend. He was pitching He was pitching a, a, a guy his service, right? Mm-hmm. And I told him, he was, he was like, I don't know how to do this. I'm so nervous and I, I really want this. And I said, you should just get to know him. I don't know why you're nervous. You have your expertise. So why don't you just spend some time getting to know who he is and what he needs? And it kind of flipped him. Mm-hmm. And I, I'm so glad that you said that because I think that really is key, is cultivating your relationships um, and your network will come from yeah. that. Exactly. Well, exactly. that's great. So we end each episode with the same question. And in keeping with the name of the Iron Butterfly podcast, if you could give yourself a code name, what would it be and why? Sure. Um, the code name I would give myself is Warrior Luminous. And the why behind that is, you know, I I, I feel like I have done some tough assignments. I have... Um, challenge the status quo, continue to challenge the status quo. Um, I have employed um, courage along the way and, and, and step out and been relentless and also um, fight for the underdog. And the luminous, I become to realize that as I was doing this in my career and as I was moving up, that I am a face of hope for so many within the IC that Um, there's nothing special about me. So it is possible to achieve what I have achieved. And so my goal is to always inspire, encourage, and to give others that hope in that sense that they too can achieve and and achieve even more. And so that's why I chose that. I, I, there's, that's like a drop the mic. I don't know. (laughs) That's a perfect way to end an episode. 
I, you know, I thank you for sharing your time with us. I thank you for sharing your thoughtfulness with us, your stories about your incredible life and career. And, uh, you know, Janice, it's been such a pleasure. Thank you for doing this with us. Oh, thank you. I appreciate the opportunity. This has been an episode of Iron Butterfly, co-produced by the amazing women of the IC and the National Security Institute at George Mason Scalia Law School. To find out more about AWIC, email us at awicpodcast at gmail.com. We would love to hear from you. You can also learn more about NSI and upcoming events at nationalsecurity.gmu.edu. If you like the show, be sure to rate, review, and subscribe. Lastly, we'd like to thank Grant Haver for production assistance. Stay fierce, and we'll talk next time.